Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise. I want to thank you for tuning in today for a little Texas history. You're joining listeners in 150 other countries listening to this podcast. That's hard to believe, but hey, Texas gets around. I wanted to tell you something uh, today that I don't normally talk about, but you know, I listen to a fair number of podcasts. We all have our rotations of stuff we listen to when we're working out or whatever. But recently, I found a Texas-oriented podcast that really struck me. It's called Vanishing Postcards, and it's hosted by uh, a man from Austin named Evan Stern. And Evan, it turns out, is a very accomplished stage performer. But uh, what I noticed is he's got a great eye for his story. And so what he does with Vanishing Postcards is travels around Texas to places that he's curious about. And he gets kind of the real story behind him. He interviews the owners, the customers, the employees, and he puts it all together in what I consider a very well-produced performance, really. It's it's um, like going on a road trip with him. He's been to a old Austin bar that, that uh, I will confess I've been to, and it was neat to learn a little more about that. He went to a Fredericksburg peach orchard recently, which is something that's uh, all of us who have had Hill Country peaches are very interested in. He went to a Czech dance hall up near Temple, that kind of thing. And uh, he's really, like I said, he's taking you along on a road trip. So it's really kind of a fun podcast to listen to if you're like me and you like driving around Texas. Because uh, so often we go on these road trips and we don't stop and, and see uh, what we're driving by. But Vanishing Postcards, he does a good job of taking us to those places. So check out Vanishing Postcards and uh, let me know what you think. Well, today we're going to do a very special episode for you. This episode is being released on June 19th, 2021, Juneteenth. It's the 156th anniversary of the day that Union General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston after the Civil War, and he issued General Order Number 3, advising the slaves in Texas that they were free. And what's special about this particular Juneteenth is that two days ago, the U.S. Congress designated Juneteenth a national holiday. Well, Juneteenth has been a holiday, a state holiday in Texas for over 40 years and is a celebration of a Texas event. So once again, Texas is leading the way. What's also special is that a little less than a month ago, there was a book released that is really, to my knowledge anyway, the first scholarly look at Juneteenth, how it came about and how it's been celebrated. So today, I'm proud to present you with an interview that I did with author, historian, and Texan Ed Cottom about the history of Juneteenth and his new book, which is called appropriately, Juneteenth, The Story Behind the Celebration. So let's go back to Galveston, Texas in 1865 and get wise about Texas with author Ed Cottom. Ed, welcome to Wise About Texas. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm delighted to be here. Well, the occasion I was working on a Juneteenth episode, and uh, coincidentally, as I was starting to work on it, you released what has got to be the most comprehensive examination of Juneteenth uh, to date. And it's called Juneteenth, the story behind the celebration. And you were so gracious to agree to this interview because you will do a much better job of explaining how Juneteenth came about. And uh, we're recording this podcast 
the day after the United States Congress uh, made Juneteenth a national holiday. So we'll definitely speak to that. Uh, but this is sort of a natural extension of your Civil War work, uh, which is extensive. Can you tell us, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your interest in the Civil War and some of the writings that you've produced? Well, I got interested in the Civil War very early uh, as a young kid. My mother took me to the Vicksburg battlefield, and I was just hooked on it after that and got really interested in it. And I've you know, kind of followed Civil War history ever since. But, you know, I've always been interested in the Civil War history in Texas, where I live, and there really originally wasn't much on it. But uh, people like Don Frazier have written up some things about it, and then, then I got into it real heavy. Uh, we had a weekend place down in Galveston, and I knew that there had been Civil War activity in Galveston. Uh, but I didn't know much about it. So I went to the library, the Rosenberg Library, which is a treasure. That's and a wonderful place. It is a w- wonderful place. And I, I asked, I said, is there a book on the Battle of Galveston? And they said, there's not one. And I said, there's not one? No, nobody has ever written a you know, scholarly book on the Battle of Galveston at that time. And so I kind of waited around about five years and finally decided, well, I'm if nobody else is going to write it, I'm going to write it. And so I started working on it. And the University of Texas uh, Press published Battle on the Bay. This was in 1998. And while I was in the course of, of doing that book, uh, I got really interested in uh, some of the people that were there. And what, the one that intrigued me the most was a fellow named Dick Dowling, who was in charge of a small artillery company. And he was famous because he had fought the Battle of Sabine Pass, which is one of the most amazing victories in military history. So I waited a while on that and then decided, well, I'll write that one, too, since it's kind of flows through to my research. So five years later, I published uh, Sabine Pass, the Confederacy of Thermopylae. And then in the course of doing that, I came across some some incredible uh, pictures of ships and a diary that was actually published in the Galveston newspaper at the time of the Civil War. That led to my third book, and it's just kind of kept on going since then. And since I was interested in Civil War history in Galveston, I started leaving, leading tours down there every, basically every year on the anniversary of the battle, right around the 1st of January, I lead walking tours. And, and during the course of leading those tours, I realized that we were walking right by the site of uh, General Gordon Granger's headquarters at the time that the Juneteenth order was issued. And when I started doing that, uh, I would lead tours by that. And I'd say, this is where Juneteenth happened. And, you know, for a lot of people that were not from Texas, they'd say, June what? They, they didn't know what that was or what had really happened. And so I started accumulating, you know, research on this uh, subject of Juneteenth for, I guess, probably 30 or 40 years. And finally got around to, to writing the book uh, about starting about five years ago. And of course, the timing is interesting just because the, the book gets released, like you say, a, basically a, less than a month before Juneteenth becomes a national holiday. Yeah, that's uh, uh, quite a coincidence, or maybe it's not. I don't know. This, this book, I will say to the listeners, is a fascinating and deeply scholarly work. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount, even growing up in Texas, loving Texas history. Jean, Juneteenth has been a part of my life. Uh, my whole life, but uh, this book is going to be a game changer. But before we get to Galveston, let's go to New Orleans, because you spend some time in this book. uh, In in your research, 
really goes into how the Emancipation Proclamation came about, why it came about, and the effect that it had, culminating, of course, in Juneteenth. But um, let's start in New Orleans. Can you talk a little bit about New Orleans and Benjamin Butler, in 1862, and what the situation was, and how that how that relates to the Emancipation Proclamation? Right. Well, the uh, Benjamin Butler had kind of started the war on the East Coast in Virginia, and very early in the war, three enslaved people ran away from the Confederate fortifications there and ended up in, in General Butler's uh, territory there at Fortress Monroe. And he didn't really know what to do with them, but he knew he didn't want to send them back to their owners because the owners were going to use them to, to build you know, fortifications. And so he, he invoked a doctrine that was called, the, you know, basically it's contraband, which is originally used on, in a nautical law uh, when you would seize a ship, uh, you know, one, one belligerent in a uh, war would seize a ship that was carrying goods or supplies for the other and to declare them contraband and keep them. But, you know, Butler kind of invoked this thing almost as a throwaway line at first, but he, he was shocked to see that the government made it sort of the centerpiece of their whole theory on, on what could be done with enslaved people that ran into Union lines. Then Butler is eventually transferred down to New Orleans, where he has a, a big run in, of course, with the, the, the local inhabitants, and uh, that's causing trouble. And so Butler tries to start finding ways to occupy uh, the enslaved people that come into Union lines there, and there's, there are quite a few of them, and there's a big controversy about whether or not they can take uh, one, one of the... Uh, one of his subordinates wants to take them and arm them and make them into uh, soldiers, but Butler doesn't feel like he has authority to do that at least yet. And so there's a tremendous controversy about that. And Butler's writing back to the War Department saying, we need answers. This is something that is not getting any easier. We need answers. And of course, it's a hot button issue up there in Washington, and they just don't really want to give anybody any, any guidance on this for fear that it'll be taken out of context and they'll they'll be they'll suffer for it well and that that just shows just just your answer you the, your general description of the situation demonstrates that this was a lot more complicated than hey we're going to war and slavery is either going to continue or not i mean there were a lot of issues on both sides about this that we had to work out um and it was extremely complicated although i'll say butler for a military general came up with a brilliant legal argument on the contraband issue, uh, and it solved a problem for at least for temporarily. And uh, the listeners can, can read that for sure. Um, talk, mention the Native Guard. You mentioned, you started to mention it. That was kind of an interesting, only in New Orleans type of phenomenon. Who were the Native Guard? Yeah, the uh, General Butler had this idea that he wanted to uh, enlist Black troops, but he knew that the first Union officer to really do that would be pilloried in the Northern press. It would get a lot of problems and the Confederates would make a big issue out of it. Oh, you're doing this. And so he decided that there was one thing he could do that he thought he could get away with, kind of like what he'd done with the, the contraband theory of how he could keep the slaves. And what he decided to do was he was going to enlist the first Native Guard. And what this was, it was sort of a, a group of Creoles, I would call them, uh, the people that were uh, you know, they were black, but, but uh, lighter in color. And this was an organization that had started in Louisiana before the war. 
the Confederates had actually tried to enlist the same group uh, in the Confederate service. They didn't really want to fight for the Confederacy, but they were formerly enlisted in the Confederacy for a while. And so Butler said, nobody could complain about that because I'm just enlisting people that the Confederates had already enlisted on their side. And so they would become officially the first black uh, military organization in, in the Civil War. And that's uh, a fascinating story of its own. So the first black military organization to fight for the United States in the Civil War had previously fought for the Confederacy. Right. <laughs> Again, just showing how complicated the Civil War was at the time. But um, So Lincoln uh, decides that uh, in the middle of the war, that some sort of proclamation to free some set of the slaves was necessary. Can you talk a little bit about the, his thinking and the politics behind all of that? Right. Well, to start off with, we, you know, we have to start with the numbers. The numbers are that uh, going into the Civil War, there are about 4 million enslaved people in the United States. And about 10% of those people are in the so-called border states. And these are places like Maryland and things like that that, that are on the border but they would not become Confederate states. So these are Northern states that stay with the Union and they have about 10% of the enslaved population in them. Lincoln is absolutely terrified that he's gonna say or do something wrong on slavery and that that is gonna drive Kentucky and places like that into the Confederacy. He doesn't wanna do that. So he basically holds off on doing anything about slavery until the fall of 1862. And at that point, he kind of comes to the realization that uh, something needs to be done here. He had visited the battlefields in Virginia uh, on the Peninsula Campaign and had heard firsthand accounts about how the Confederates were using uh, their slaves to, to build the fortifications and even fight in some cases, although those reports were very hard to substantiate. And so Lincoln came back determined to do something about it, but he wanted to do it in a fashion that uh, would not offend the border states if he could, and he also wanted to do it in a fashion that maybe could survive judicial review. Because, you know, we, we forget what a great lawyer Lincoln was, and he right. knew the law very well, and he, he although he personally hated slavery, uh, in fact, one time he said, if slavery is not wrong, uh, nothing is, but yeah. he just didn't feel like he could, as the executive, go in and do something to emancipate the slaves. So again, as they're coming in in September of 1862, uh, the Union fights and kind of gets a tactical draw, possibly a win, if you want to call it that, at Antietam. And Lincoln decides now is the time. And so he issues the Emancipation Proclamation and unveils it at one of the most famous cabinet meetings in American history in September of 1862. And here's something that I don't think a lot of people, even in the, in the Civil War community, have really understood about that, that meeting. Uh, we have Lincoln's handwritten draft. It's in the New York State Library of the Emancipation Proclamation. And as he's getting ready to discuss it with his cabinet, he tells them, look, I'm, I'm going to do this. I don't want your comments on whether or not I should do this. But if there's something about the language that strikes you as, as problematic, you know, let me know and we'll fix it. And with that, he proceeds to read this draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. And at the conclusion, uh, his Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, uh, comes over and says, I have, a, I have a change for you. And, and Lincoln says, what is it? 
And in the Emancipation Proclamation language, he had put that uh, the executive would recognize the freedom of the slaves he intended to set free. And Seward said, define executive to include the military, which of course they are a part of the executive branch. And also we'd say recognize, put and maintain the freedom of these individuals. And so this little thing is put in there with a carrot. You can see where it was inserted. And the accounts of that meeting are that this was a minor thing. Nobody thought it was, it was a big deal. It was just a minor change. And Lincoln later said uh, to uh, an artist that, you know, he had originally thought about putting that language in there, but had rejected it. But when Seward mentioned it, he said, well, we'll just go ahead and put it in. But that changed the whole thrust of the Emancipation Proclamation. Because, you know, you could recognize the freedom of slaves in Washington, D.C. in Lincoln's office, which is basically right. what he did. But if you're the military and the, the commander has now issued an order that you are to recognize and maintain the freedom of the people you're freeing, that is a huge, huge task. And as the army is going to spread out through the Confederacy and in the course of doing so encounter millions of enslaved individuals, they now have been given the task not only to recognize they're free and declare them free, but they have to maintain the freedom. And that's a very, very difficult issue, very difficult assignment. Well, and in, in, in my reading, at least, it really changed the nature of the war uh, for people receiving news of this proclamation. And of course, everyone in the North knew it immediately. But the whole point of this episode is some didn't know it for months or years. And so... Uh, now the war was absolutely without question a war to free the slaves. Yes, because the military had the obligation to to maintain that freedom, which meant fight for it if they had to. That's right. And the, the way it was kind of a funny thing, uh, Lincoln had said that he was going to figure out which slaves to free and which to leave alone on January the first, eighteen sixty three, which was exactly a hundred days after the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation was issued. So he did that because, again, he, he was looking at appellate review of, of this action. And he said, you know, if I only free the slaves in places where the Confederacy has had a chance to lay down their arms and they haven't, uh, that will not offend the border states. And that will strengthen my argument that I am doing this strictly on the basis of military necessity, which was the, the claim he was going to make. And so everybody waited the 100 days. And there was a lot of speculation whether Lincoln would follow through on his order and actually declare it on uh, January 1, 1863, but he did so. And that's why the Emancipation Proclamation has uh, that date on it. And that's when a lot of people will say, technically, that's when the slaves were free. But of course, Lincoln only freed the slaves in Confederate-controlled territories. So you know, if you want to be a cynic about it, you could say he only really freed the slaves in a place where he couldn't actually free the <laughs> slaves. And nobody basically got uh, emancipated on January 1, 1863. It would take the military years to bring the war to a conclusion. And then at the end, these Union generals and forces marching through the Confederacy would have the difficult job of basically securing the freedom of the enslaved individuals and maintaining it. Well, let's uh, move down to Galveston itself. Uh, Galveston has a little bit of a unique place in Civil War history. Texas, of course, considered the only Confederate state never to be 
successfully occupied by the Union, but Galveston was for a time. And you mentioned the Battle of Galveston, which you have written about. Maybe we can have you back uh, when we do the Battle of Galveston. But what, what was Galveston like during the Civil War? Give us just sort of an overview. Well, Galveston is the largest city in Texas at the time. It's kind of funny. We think of it sort of as a bedroom community for Houston now, but the truth was that Galveston was the big city and Houston was just basically the railroad hub uh, that fed into Galveston. Two thirds of the cotton coming out of the state of Texas went out of Galveston and it was the deep water port for the state of Texas. Uh, it's really the only deep water port on this part of the Gulf Coast, which made it a tremendous uh, war objective for the Union. And they would first occupy it with a naval force in October of 1862. And then the Confederates come along under General John Bankhead Magruder, recapture the city on January 1 of 1863, the same day as the Emancipation Proclamation becomes free. Uh, is, is issued. And, the, and that's interesting because, again, Galveston is the only major port that the Confederates ever recaptured from the Union. And they would hold on to it for the rest of the war. And Galveston would end up being the last major Confederate port anywhere in the summer of 1865. And huge amounts of blockade running would come out of that city. Well, uh 1865, it was blockade running. 1818 or earlier, it was piracy. It's uh, Galveston, certainly a different place, isn't it? There um, was, there's something interesting happens in Galveston all the time. That's exactly right. <laughs> so uh, the the surrender occurs. Lee surrendered at Maddox Courthouse, and the news has to travel through the Confederacy. So kind of what was the situation when the Confederacy surrendered and how did Granger come, General Granger come to Galveston? Well, the way it works is there's a, uh, uh, Galveston uh, again was serving as the last major Confederate port, very active place and the, be the best newspaper in, in Texas as well, although it's being printed in Houston just to keep it out of uh, Union hands should they decide to invade. And the, the reports that Galveston got on Lee's surrender were first discounted. Nobody could believe that that had happened uh, because there, uh, there was a Galveston company that was part of Hood's Texas Brigade that was uh, with Lee and nobody could believe that. But then, then the story was confirmed. And at first, the officials in Texas resolutely insisted that no matter what happened in the East, they would continue to fight on. And there were a bunch of wild schemes hatched that uh, Jefferson Davis would be smuggled to Cuba and then into Texas, and maybe he would go down to the border and eventually go into Mexico and basically head the Confederacy and, and Texas from this position in uh, Mexico. But Jefferson Davis is captured. Uh, there are the surrenders start in April with, with the lease surrender, and they kind of follow about every two weeks. There's a new army that uh, surrenders, and this goes all the way down uh, to the uh, Richard Taylor and, and the uh, forces east of the Mississippi. And so at the end of the war, the last major Confederate army is the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, which is the army west of the Mississippi, which the largest part of that, of course, is Texas. And so... Uh, even though the, the Texas authorities are talking really big about staying the course and staying in the war, the people of Texas are tired of it and they know they have no chance. 
and eventually you know, cooler heads will prevail and the surrender will be signed over in New Orleans and then ratified by General Edmund Kirby Smith in Galveston. Uh, and that will be the end of the Confederate state of Texas and the Confederate army in charge of Texas. But that's still left undone the major job of actually occupying Texas and enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation. So General Grant is by this time in charge of everything and he sends down Phil Sheridan to New Orleans to kind of deal with the Texas situation, both occupying the state and sending troops down to the border because uh, Grant is convinced that the French are in Mexico and getting ready to potentially try and take Texas away from the United States. So he's gonna send a lot of occupation troops to Texas. And in the course of doing that, the uh, General Granger, Gordon Granger's over in Alabama, and he and his 13th Corps are a lot of them gonna be sent over to Texas as part of the occupation force. So they're gonna leave, again, this is in early part in the middle part of June of 1865. And General Sheridan knows that uh, General Granger is a good combat soldier, but he's a very uncouth, eccentric guy. And he's not the guy you would want to have as the point person for anything, let alone emancipation. So General Sheridan uh, meets with a bunch of people, including some representatives from Texas who tell him that things are going to be really bad in Texas if you just show up and say all the slaves are emancipated, good luck. He said that will be a disaster. And they've had a disaster like that up in northwest Louisiana, where the enslaved people flocked to the army up around Shreveport, and a general named uh, Francis J. Heron had issued an order that to me is probably the, the closest ancestor of the Juneteenth order. And his orders basically said uh, to the freed people, you're free, but for now, stay where you are and keep working for the same people that you're doing now. We will we'll take care of you, but we you've got to stay where you are. He's trying to make sure the crops are harvested. He's trying to make sure there's not a general set of unrest up there that's going to undo everything. And so General Sheridan takes Heron's order over in Louisiana, modifies it a little bit, and he sends a, an order to General Granger in Alabama saying, when you get to Galveston, you do these things. And he says, you notify the people of Texas that all slaves are free. He puts that in quotes, even though it really is not a quote from anything. And, and he also tells Granger, uh, Tell the freedmen to stay where they are, that we will not tolerate idleness. They must remain employed and stay where they are. And so those are the basically the first sentence of the Juneteenth Order and the last two sentences of the Juneteenth Order. Those were not written by General Granger. They were written by General Sheridan and sent to Granger. So Granger is now going to make the journey with his troops over to Galveston, and he's going to arrive on the morning of June 19th, 1865, the original Juneteenth at which point he follows Sheridan's orders and issues a set of what are called general orders. What are those when he, what are general orders? Yeah, there, there are kind of two sets of orders for an RB headquarters. There's a general order and a special order. A special order is if I told you to do something, somebody specific, one little unit, one little thing, this is what you're supposed to do or not do. A general order is something that's basically issued to the entirety of your command. It's a general subject. It's something that addresses a very general situation and not any particular uh, thing. And so Juneteenth will involve the issuance of five general orders. 
uh, when General Granger gets to Galveston. And basically, we think his staff officers, a fellow named Major Frederick W. Emery, wrote all five of those. And of course, General Orders Number Three, the famous one, uh, does take uh, General Sheridan's language for the first and the last two sentences. And then there's always been this this sentence in the middle that nobody really knew where it came from or how it got written. In some ways, it's the it's the best language in the Juneteenth Order. Is that the absolute equality sentence? Yes, there's a sentence yeah. in there. Go ahead. Sorry. There's a sentence in there that says. Uh, that what freedom means is absolute equality of property and personal rights. And it's very elegant language. And it's interesting because it went well beyond the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation was about declaring people free, but it didn't really define what freedom meant, and certainly not in such broad and expansive terms. Well, that just goes to show you Texas is always a little different. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe leading once again. We're Texas centric around here. We'll uh, we'll claim that credit. So, um, here's a here's a question: What did the uh, what did the newly freed individuals do? How was the order delivered? First of all, so our listeners understand exactly what happened on the day of Juneteenth, and and then what? Which was the big question. Yeah, this, this is one of the myths and controversies about Juneteenth that I kind of, uh, I hope, put to rest in my book. And it's always been this tradition that General Granger went out on a balcony and read this order to a large assembled crowd and it included you know, large numbers of enslaved people. That's just not the way Army orders were delivered. And that's certainly not what General Granger did. We have no record of that happening at all. And the reason is, if you think about it, it's not a real good effective way to deliver that message. If you look at the number of enslaved people in Galveston County in 1864, which is the last number we have, the tax records, less than 0.3% of the enslaved people in Texas lived in Galveston County. And that's in the whole county. In the city of Galveston, it was almost infinitesimal, the number of enslaved people that were there. Slavery in Texas was largely sort of a rural phenomenon. That's, that's where the people lived and worked and, and were there. So to get the word out to those people uh, where they were, it needed to go out a very broad distribution uh, capacity. And so Granger did what, what they've done in North Carolina, which is they gave the orders to the local newspaper and had them published. Every newspaper in the state published all of these orders, sometimes for a period in excess of a month. And that's how they were primarily distributed. They also made them into handbills, little things that you could hang up or paste up. And we still have one of those in the Dallas Historical Society uh, that's, that's left from this arrangement. And these things were uh, pasted up all over the, the city and eventually all over the state. And they sent out uh, uh, officers and, and chaplains and things to all the kind of remotest areas in Texas to make sure that these orders were posted and read to the enslaved people. And, and this was the general, this was the general order. So they were, uh, if they could read it, they were reading, you have absolute equality, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And it's, it's very interesting. We have uh, slave narratives or interviews that were conducted in the 1930s of people who had been actual slaves. And I have a lot of those in my book and, and pictures of these folks and everything. It's fascinating. Of course, in the 1930s, uh, these people are very elderly just by nature of arithmetic, 
But many of them say that they could remember what happened on the day they were emancipated, just like it was yesterday. And many of them mention the fact that they were read the Freedom Paper. Sometimes they call it the paper. Sometimes they call it the long paper, which is probably the newspaper. But many of them mention this, this Freedom Paper. And we, we, you know, there had been some speculation, oh, this was the Emancipation Proclamation. But, you know, that wasn't really current out in Texas in 1865. The thing that was really being read to them was the Juneteenth order. And the little yeah. handbill we have in the Dallas Historical Society has some orders on it. But the only one that really is in the middle there is General Orders Number 3, because they wanted that one read. And it's we know it was read. And, and it's, it's interesting. One reason we know it was read to these people is that sentence about absolute equality. Because if, if you were the master or overseer or whoever was reading this to these enslaved people, you would know that these people had not been educated. They, they had been kept from education as part of their right. status, deliberately kept. It was illegal in some cases to educate them. So you would have to, you'd read this to them, but you'd have to translate parts of it. And the second sentence that talks about freedom being absolute equality of personal rights and personal liberties and so forth, to translate that is kind of hard, but I, I, I realized after a while that the best way to translate that would be probably to say, you are as free as I am. And yeah. sure enough, once I made that connection, I went back through the, uh, the slave narratives for Texas, and it's everywhere. These people all will all say, he told me you are as free as I am, or some language almost like that. And when you hear that language, you're hearing an echo of what Major Frederick Emery wrote and added to the Juneteenth order there in the middle of that order. And why do I think it was Emory that added that language and not Granger? Well, first again, Granger is, is not, not a, a very couth man. He does not articulate at all. He's not the kind of guy that would do this. Emory had uh, come, he'd been born in Maine, but his family moved to Kansas. Uh, they were really abolitionists in sympathy and Emory had been started a, an anti-slavery newspaper in Kansas. When the war comes, he joins up and joins a Kansas cavalry company. And his captain is John Brown Jr., the son of the famous martyr. I'll be darned. So, and these guys are hardcore. I mean, they'd, yeah. hold, they'd hold meetings where they'd sing the John Brown hymn and close it by saying, you know, grabbing hands. And they would say, who will avenge old John Brown? And they, they would chant, we will, we will, we will. Wow. So this guy just happens to be on General Granger's staff. And he's his principal staff officer as they're coming over from Alabama to Galveston. And he inserts this absolute equality language into the order on the way over there. And it becomes famous. And in fact, it's interesting. We're dedicating a, uh, a mural in Galveston this weekend, a 5,000 square foot mural on the side of a building overlooking the side of General Granger's headquarters. And the name of that mural is absolute equality from the language that that major inserted. 29-year-old guy uh, in, inserted in Juneteenth order. And, and changed the direction of the country forever. I uh, Just for the listener's sake, we're recording this episode, as I mentioned, right before Juneteenth 2021. And uh, on Juneteenth, there will be that mural dedication in Galveston and uh, I'll mention something at the end of the episode about a bonus episode coming up concerning that mural. But before we close, I want to ask you this from 
the slave narratives you talked about, uh, how important that day was for the rest of their lives. They remembered that day. Um, how did it evolve from a day of significance to a holiday celebration? How, I guess what I'm trying to ask awkwardly is how did it, how did the holiday kind of evolve through the years? Right. Well, again, there was a, a, a lot of uh, controversy and question at first about when you would celebrate emancipation. If you want to remember, when will you do it? And some people thought it was January 1st when Lincoln issued the, the Emancipation Proclamation the second time. And so there was actually a celebration in Galveston on July 1 of, of uh, 1865. But that really didn't take off very much. But what they did decide to do is to hold huge celebrations in Texas cities starting in June of 1866, the very first anniversary of Juneteenth. So and right it, away, it was its significance was celebrated here in Texas. Right. And in fact, uh, General Sheridan was over in Galveston watching all of these celebrations with a, you know, a very watchful eye because he was concerned that uh, racist forces would come and there would be violence. It turned out there was not. And, and it is interesting, if you look at the accounts of those earliest celebrations, Galveston had, had a decent uh, celebration, but the biggest one was in Houston. In Houston, there were thousands of people uh, marching up and down Main Street from early in the day until barely late in the day, wearing red, white, and blue. And it was, they said it was an incredible celebration. People in the newspaper kind of talked about it as though, okay, it's a one-time deal to celebrate that. Glad you had it. Now that's over with. We can move on. But it was such a success that it blossomed and became big. And not only in the big cities, there were some rural celebrations that included thousands of people because that's where they had still lived and worked. And ever since that first Juneteenth, uh, there have been celebrations in, in, in Texas of the event. The term Juneteenth arrived a little bit later. We don't know exactly when, but the first published reference to Juneteenth by that name is in, I think it's January of 1890. Uh, and celebrations would evolve. Uh, they, again, they started as sort of a parade. This soon led to basically picnics and outdoor shared food. Uh, music is added. Uh, speeches by prominent people come to be a big part of it. And the whole tradition uh, basically arrived and started as soon as there was a, a Juneteenth anniversary and has continued ever since. And that's Juneteenth's claim to fame even before it was a national holiday. It, it is the oldest continuously celebrated commemoration of emancipation. And it all started in Texas again. <laughs> we, we lead the way once more. How did it get to be a national? How did the, the nation adopt Juneteenth just because Texas was really the only one doing it or the oldest one doing it? Well, there, there are several reasons, I think, that this one became the celebration. There, there, timing is part of it. Again, you could celebrate January 1, but that's New Year's Day. There's already a holiday. It wouldn't right. be really a good date to be marching around outside. Uh, June 19th is perfect in the suburb. You know, it's, it's a good, good place to have a celebration. And from my looking at it, I, I think that the reason they chose Juneteenth and when I say they, Juneteenth has been chosen by a broad consensus of formerly enslaved people and or their descendants to mark the day of emancipation. And the thing is, there's not really a natural holiday for emancipation. 
there's no no Fourth of July to point to. You can look at you know, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the first one and the second one. But again, they didn't really nobody got freed on those dates. You could say, well, maybe we'll go on and use the Thirteenth Amendment, which outlawed uh, slavery. Maybe we'll celebrate that date in December of 1865. But the truth is, by that point, all the slaves of the Confederacy had already been, you know, liberated a long time before that. And so people in Texas, I think, made a really important and, and fundamental decision. And they said, forget all that stuff in Washington. We don't care about any of that. I want to celebrate the day I was free. And right. the thing, thing is, there's no, that happened all over the country at different times, different places. So there's no one day you could point to for that. But the people in Texas said, look, that freedom paper was the thing I remember most. And that was the most important thing to me. And so they kind of gravitated toward the day that paper was issued, which, of course, is Juneteenth. And celebrating that became incredibly important to them. And I think it's logical to celebrate emancipation on that date, because when when Granger arrives in Texas and issues that order, there are over 250,000 enslaved people in Texas. Uh, slavery in Texas had actually grown very significantly during the war because of the number of, of uh, masters that brought their enslaved people with them and fled to Texas. So it's a big population here. And so Juneteenth marks the date that the last and largest intact slave population in the Confederacy is, is liberated. So I think that's an appropriate date to do it. That doesn't mean it's the end of slavery because we still have all the slaves up there in the border states that are not impacted by any of the stuff we've been talking about. The, the, uh, the Indian territories, they don't even eliminate their slavery until 1866 at the earliest. So there are still enslaved people, but Juneteenth marks the end of the last large intact slave population in the Confederacy. And again, Texas is the last Confederate state. Galveston is the last major port. So saying that what happened in Galveston on June 19th, 1865, is kind of the end of the war and the end of slavery in the Confederacy. That, to me, is a, you know job done, and celebrating that makes all the sense in the world to me. And ever since uh, the first anniversary, it's uh, remained a celebration. And uh, yesterday, June 16th, 2021, was made a national holiday to recognize the free freeing of that last and largest slave population in Texas as uh, the demarcation for the entire nation uh, about the emancipation of the slaves. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for your scholarship and your work. Uh, the book is Juneteenth, the story behind the celebration. It's the first and, and will remain the most thorough analysis of this holiday. It's a wonderful book. Uh, where, where can folks get this book? Uh, you can buy it from Texas A&M Press, or you can get it uh, on Amazon as well. It, it, right. Almost every book deal is carrying it. Well, if you're interested in the Civil War, if you're a Texan um, or anyone, you should uh, definitely check it out. It's a great book. Thanks again for being on Wise About Texas today, Ed. It was a pleasure visiting with you, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Well, now we come to the part of the episode called Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places we talked about in the episode. For this one, I'm going to send you down to Galveston to 2201 Strand Street. So 2201 Strand, that's Strand and 22nd. 
in Galveston, downtown Galveston, you'll see the Absolute Equality mural that we discussed in the episode, and you'll be on the site of Granger's headquarters where General Order Number 3 was issued. And the other, the other thing I'm going to tell you to do is while you're down there in Galveston, downtown Galveston, you're on a Civil War battlefield. So take some time, walk around Galveston, read the historical markers. Downtown Galveston, and there are some Civil War markers and other markers, is a great place to spend a lot of time. You're going to find some good oysters, some good gumbo, some good seafood, uh, and take, take your time and read all the historical markers that you find. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Go find us on social media, like and share the Facebook page. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. If you get a minute, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That helps people find the show and learn a little more Texas history. And if you'd like to support the preservation and promotion of Texas history, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wise about texas thanks for listening go out and do something for texas today until next time god bless texas and we'll see you down the road